Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where we go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, ASEAN Innovation. Welcome back to another call, and it's actually a catch-up episode with Greg Krasnov, the CEO and founder of Philippines' first fully digital bank, Tonic. To our long-time listeners, you may remember him from Season 1, Episode 18, where he shared his views on the winning model for consumer neobanks in emerging markets, and why he believes the Philippines is ripe for a fully digital banking proposition. I'm a big believer in focus. So for us, what we'd like to do is over the next five to ten years we want to build one of the top 20 retail banks in the Philippines but delivered purely digitally and through that pure digital delivery we would hope to become the most profitable bank in the country because it is definitely achievable if you're operating you know at the types of margins that the banking sector is but with purely digital cost structure our objective would have us measuring our balance sheet towards one to two billion US dollars. That's fairly unassuming market share in the both unsecured consumer lending and the deposit market because we expect in particular the unsecured consumer lending market to expand a lot. We think that currently the $10 billion asset class, it should be a 40 to $50 billion asset class over the next five, six years. So we'd hope to have a few percentage points of that and have a couple billion dollars of balance sheet. A digital banking license, app launch, $130 million plus in consumer deposits and $131 million Series B round later. Greg is now back to catch us up on the amazing momentum Tonic has achieved in such a short time, breaking records among neobanks even globally. Being a user of Tonic myself, I was excited to learn more and revisit Tonic's story on the show. So you're tuning in to our call with him from the 22nd of February in 2022. But before we go on call, don't forget to follow our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite podcasting platforms. And you can follow us for weekly content from founders and investors on Twitter at InsigniaVC and Instagram at Insignia underscore VC. Now let's head into the call. So we have none other than the CEO and founder of Southeast Asia's really first fully digital bank proposition, which is Tonic. We have none other than Greg Krasnov here on the show. Greg, how have you been? It's been a while. Hi, Paulo. Thank you very much for having me on and uh, thank you for your business, man. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm happy to have you know, partner with you so they want to, and myself as well, really enjoying the perks and all the services that Tonic offers on the app. It certainly has been, I would say, really helpful, especially since, you know, it's been really hard to go out the past few years and we've been able to manage my finances all on my phone. So yeah, it's been great. But for our audience who is listening to Greg for the first time, just a little quick intro. So Greg Krasnov is a CEO of FinTech Entrepreneur. He's had a historic career in financial services, spanning not just Southeast Asia, but Europe as well where he's from. Prior to founding Tonic, he co-founded and chaired four other successful fintech startups in Asia, including Credit Lab and Asia Credit. And before coming to Southeast Asia, he was also the founder and CEO of one of the top CE-backed success stories in consumer lending in Eastern Europe, at a time back in Ukraine, and which he exited also as well. And before jumping into fintech, he had also spent a decade in CE in Europe. So now that we're in 2022, it's been one and a half years since our first conversation. Samir and, and Yinglan were in that conversation as well. And you talked a lot about what you were seeing at at the time in the Philippines, this massive opportunity for consumer finance, this whole movie that was playing out and all this progress that, that you made. So we'd love to kick things off by talking about what has happened since then. Maybe we can bring our audience up to speed. Sure. Once again, thanks for having me on and it's great to be back. So we launched to the public in March last year. So we've now been operational for just about a year. The year has really gone well above our expectations, to be very frank with you, in terms of the traction that we were able to achieve. Just to give you a sense, you know, we're currently 130 million US dollars of deposits from the consumers. We've onboarded over 200,000 clients already. And within the first three months, we hit $50 million 
And we actually started putting the brakes a little bit because deposits were coming in too fast for us. Our December goal for December last year was $50 million. And we hit that in three months, just in June. So basically, the deposit proposition, which was our MVP, we have proven beyond reasonable doubt that the Filipino consumer really understands and likes what we're doing, really wants that product. And so what that caused us to do is put a lot of acceleration on the lending side of our proposition because deposits in themselves don't actually make money for us. They're just the raw material for the main product that we make, which is loans. So originally, we were planning to just do the unsecured cash flow on the asset side. But when we saw that there was this huge pool on our deposit product and that we got a lot more raw material, then we decided to expand our product range for lending. And actually, we rolled out our cash loan, which we call Quick Loan. We rolled it out at the end of last year, and we're now starting to scale that a little bit. But there are a couple other products that we're in the process of launching, and you will see out of us over the next two, three months, two more lending products being launched. And each of those is addressing a very, very large market opportunity in the Philippines. These are also consumer loans, but basically we're trying to solve that huge credit gap issue. Philippines is by far the lowest in Southeast Asia and one of the lowest anywhere in Asia on lending to consumers as percentage of GDP. It's behind Nepal, it's behind Bangladesh, it's behind Cambodia, behind everything on that metric. So we really see, you know, it's a massive gap and we're very fortunate that we've proven we can get the raw material. Now we need to put that out as lending for us. Speaking of getting that raw material, pretty quickly, you mentioned that the target was December to reach 50 million, but then you reached that in the first three months. What do you think were the factors, especially externally and internally, that really drove that growth and eventually later on to decide to, you know, expand that sort of offering that you were mentioning when it comes to lending? That's a great question. People are basically asking me a lot, hey, well, aren't you offering like the top price in the market and isn't that why people are joining? Frankly, we're not offering that big of a price distance from our next two, three competitors down in the kind of digital bank channel space. I don't really want to call my current competition as digital banks because they're just really digital channel subsidiaries of existing banks. The price really isn't that big of a difference. I think that the huge difference where we've really distanced ourselves from the competition and what the customers are digging in a big way is the product and our brand. With the branding, we're brainstorming about how can we come out with something that's different. We basically had a big sit down, you know, with a team and said, okay, we need to be the anti-bank. We need to be like, what is it about banks? Well, people hate banks typically. They don't love them. We're like, we explicitly want our customers to love us. So hashtag love, how do we get them to hashtag dump their ex bank? And we basically came up with this branding, which you see in the app, which is very playful, very cozy, very kind of first name basis. We're almost flirting with our clients. You know, we celebrate anniversaries when we send them statements. And that messaging seems to resonate really well with our clients because they're very, very fed up with the banks being this kind of straitjacket, marble and gold types of institutions that are intimidating and that communicate only in very formulaic. I remind you, you know, we're the only bank out there that I'm aware of with sense of humor as one of the corporate values. That helps to bring that fun to the clients. And I think that's one thing that really helped us to get the traction. And another thing that helps helped us is the product itself. Some of the product features on the deposit side, you know, that I'm sure as a client you've seen, the stashes, for example. Nobody's done the concept of a stash in the Philippines so far. But even the term deposit in the app, there's literally only one other bank out there of all the big banks that provides the capability for you to conclude a term deposit in the digital channel. All the others require you to go to the branch for that. And the third one is the group stash, which again... Nobody has stashes and nobody definitely has group stashes. We took the concept of Polawagan, which is the Filipino kind of the group joint saving activity, 
and we'll put that into an app, and that really helps us drive the virality as well, because when you enable people to save together into one account, then you know you open an account, then you invite your buddies or you invite your family, and you guys will kind of chip in together. Guess what? For us, that drives user acquisition because new accounts get open for free. We don't have to spend additional marketing dollars. Our users refer more users to us. So it becomes that communal element that helps us drive the virality. And so all these product features together, they're working to help us service the customer's need in a very different way. And it really came out of our original market research, which established that Filipinos told us before we started designing the product, we were trying to figure out what were they missing. And the singular message that we got back is, I don't need another savings account. I need help to save. And so all of these features, they help people save, right? A stash where you can put you know, you're saving for your kid's education, you can put your kid's picture there. You're saving for a motorbike, you can put your motorbike there, the, the ideal one, you know, whatever it is, the Ducati or the Harley or, you know, whatever tickles your fancy, right? And you create that emotional attachment, that emotional attachment really drives the behavior and the savings. Same with term deposit. Nothing helps save better than locking up the money for a longer period of time and not really being able to touch it without losing the interest. Term deposit is a really good product to help people save. So those are the things I think product and promotion and to some extent price, but actually price I put as a distant third. Of course, there's process as well, you know, because we have very simple onboarding, very quick onboarding, and, you know, in less than five minutes and just, you know, a selfie and an ID. That to me is part of the baseline, kind of has to be there in order for our product to fly. So you definitely covered all the four Ps, if I might say so. And I really like how the branding proposition and also the product themselves lend to very much cultural nuances in the Philippines. The humor plus the group stashes, for example, which you mentioned, which are very much fits perfectly with the Filipino market and the Filipino sensibility. And as you mentioned, it came as a result of your market research prior to designing the product. So I want to contextualize that growth and that speed that has really been the theme of the, the past year and a half for Tonic. So how has that speed been, you know, relative to other digital banks outside of Southeast Asia? What are the implications for the industry globally as well? That's an interesting one. I think in the Philippines, we've certainly broken records on speed of growth of any bank that's ever been launched. And we've broken those with the huge, huge headroom. So even the most successful kind of digital channel contenders so far, basically now 12 months into it, and compared to what any of those guys have been able to achieve in their first 12 months of operation, we're at like five to six X compared to their results at launch. If you look at international comps, you know, it's not so easy because like most of these digital banks are, are private, but we've been able to dig up some numbers on some of the biggest names, you know, the Revolut, the Monzo, the N26s. Our first three months, I haven't actually been able to get data like for 12 months, but I got data for three months. None of these guys got to 50 million bucks in three months. Again, we went like, you know, two, three times faster at least than any of those guys at launch. And I think a big chunk of the reason is that not only, surprisingly, you know, like Philippines is not a rich market. So the average ticket of a deposit is actually a lot lower than it would be in a big market like, you know, UK or Germany. But we just see that for us, fingers crossed, like the product proposition really found a good market fit. And that's part of it having been well-researched, well-designed, and then kind of in the sweet spot. So the problems that we were having was not, you know, with the traction of the product proposition or the promotion. It was more on the technology side. Problems with the integration with our payments partners initially was like super glitchy and like over time we get better. Some of the aspects of our app initially like we're getting completely hammered on our ratings because we got way more people than we thought we would. And like, of course, then the app and the servers and all that stuff that doesn't perform fast enough for them. But luckily, we got well over all that. Today, I'm happy to say for many months running, it's really the fall last year. 
We've been running at well above four as average rating on both iOS and uh, Google Store. And I think last I checked on Play Store, we're at 4.4, which probably makes us one of the highest rated apps in the Philippines in the financial sector. So yeah, I think those were kind of some of the things we've been able to do right and that put us in good comparison both to the Filipino comps and international. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, getting a lot of users in a short amount of time is one thing, but actually being able to align the systems and align the operations to meet that demand is, is another thing entirely as well. And it could have easily gone the other way and just been overwhelmed by the amount of users, but you guys were able to like really take advantage of that and retain many of them and eventually offer all these new products. If there was one thing, I guess that, because we usually like to talk to our founders about lessons they can learn from other markets abroad, but I want to reverse that a little bit and maybe for founders in other emerging markets, say like Latin America or Africa or all these other places, what can they learn from how Tonic has navigated its way in the Philippines? Customer obsession, I think, is like the only thing I would mention. Like, And this is the number one thing that banks all over the world have completely forgotten about. And that's really what drives most of our competitive advantage. Banks have forgotten how to go to their clients and ask them a simple question. What do you want? <laughs> so just by doing that and keeping the focus on that and keeping within the organization constant kind of desire to meet and exceed the customer expectation, that's something that we've done very differently from anything that's ever been done in the Philippines. For example, we have a Sonic users group on Facebook, which developed completely spontaneously, you know, outside of us. And it has now, I think, like 20 or 30,000 users, I forget. And that group is an incredible source of insight for us. You know, I'm on the group a few times a week, like reading what people say, responding, talking directly to the customer, posting questionnaires to try to understand, you know, what the customers want, like, dislike, etc. The feedback I've gotten is, Greg, you're like the only bank CEO that's ever been known to do that in the Philippines, you know, like, <laughs> and that just blows me away because it's such amazing channel of getting that insight and getting that information. There's nothing better than talking directly to the customer. That just testifies to how the banks have forgotten how to do that. And as long as you can do that and talk to the customer and be the customer advocate internally, you'll get very far. And I am a part of some of those groups. So it's really fascinating to see the conversations amongst them. Yeah, and people don't hesitate to tag me. You know, they got an issue. It happens all the time. People just tag me and go, you know, Greg, what's going on with this? What are you guys going to do about it? You know, I got a problem. And I reply, you know, like I haven't left a question like that unreplied ever. So I just think that's part of what we stand for. Reliability is one of our core corporate values. And that's part of what we bring to the client. And that has to start with me being reliable. Well said. And I, I'd like to shift gears a little bit into the next stage. As you mentioned, you've been having all this fuel and all this foundation for what is really the monetization aspect of the business, which is lending. And so we'd love for you to share a little bit more on what's your approach to loans and lending, especially one, obviously to stand out versus the status quo and obviously lots of underserved population, but as well as this whole new rise of PNPLs and these short-term loans that could be accessed digitally as well. As you say, there are two types of competition that we have. One is the traditional banking and kind of traditional consumer finance players. And the other one is the digital economy players, the fintechs. So when it comes to traditional banks and traditional consumer finance companies, those guys have been very focused in the Philippines on the top 5% of the population. The credit bureau in the Philippines, which is like where the banks report all of their clients that have borrowed from them, it has, I think, like three or four million records, out of which more than half are duplicate because like it's somebody that has two credit cards or a personal loan and a mortgage or something. So that says a lot. 
you know, in a country the size of Philippines with, you know, 110 million plus population, only to have like a couple million records in the credit bureau, it's ridiculous. To us, that represents, you know, this tremendous opportunity of people who haven't borrowed before who are new to credit, uh, who are completely ignored by the banking sector. And the reason they're ignored by the banking sector, I think, is because banks don't really know how to credit assess this population and how to lend small ticket loans. So those are like, how to do that cost efficiently? Because if you're lending a $10,000 loan, you can afford to have some human making credit decision, contemplating it for a couple of weeks, researching it, et cetera. You can afford to have, you know, field collection people if the loan goes sideways. You can afford to do TV and billboards for advertising. But if you do a $500 loan, which is what an average Filipino wants, and there are tens of millions of Filipinos that want a $500 loan, you know, you cannot do that effectively with those types of advertising and that type of cost structure. So you need to be able to underwrite based on big data. You need to be able to underwrite based on predictive analytics without humans involved in the process. You need to be able to collect in a highly, highly cost-efficient manner where your contact center is super streamlined and like you're really only contacting physical call. The clients that give you the highest probability of return and then everybody else is kind of, you know, getting SMSs or getting emails, et cetera, and using these robotized actions to elicit repayment behavior on the collection side. So it's a lot of automation, both on, on all elements of the credit value chain. Origination, credit risk, servicing, funding, you need to just automate the hell out of it. And that's what you know the banks in the Philippines haven't really known how to do very well, so they don't go there. On the other hand, you have this budding digital lending sector, but the total digital lender credit portfolio today in the Philippines, I think is probably couple hundred million bucks, which is completely nothing compared to the scale of lending opportunity. The unsecured consumer lending market in the Philippines has the potential of 50 to 100 billion US dollars just based on today's population and compared to like Vietnam or Indonesia on a per capita basis, it needs to be 50 billion. And today's like less than 10. So all of these guys, the digital lending guys, it's so great that they're doing it. And there are some guys that are bringing some really good know-how into the country, but they don't have scalable liabilities. They're borrowing from banks, for example, you know, credit lines of $1 million, $2 million here and there. And that's just not going to feed the fire. You know, we're talking about huge elephants. It's going to take a village to eat this elephant. And if you don't have access to like big amount of like funding, you're going to be marginalized. That for us is a very exciting opportunity there. And as I mentioned, we launched our cash loan. It's very differentiated from both the digital lenders because they mostly focus on like short-term loans, very high interest rates. We focus on much more reasonable interest rates up to two-year term. So we've launched also by now, pay later in the offline channel where we'll see some announcements from us. We're partnering with some offline merchants to go and do that. And there are multiple other products in the pipeline right now, one of which, as I mentioned, should be launching in the next few months. There's a lot to look forward to. And as you mentioned, it's really just the tip of the iceberg. And this ability to really scale the lending proposition only goes back to the fact that you guys have, again, build up this huge deposit base as well. Now I also like to talk about at the end of 2021, we, we saw a new bank IPO really as one of these like successful new banking stories coming out of an emerging market. We'd like to just quickly get your thoughts on what you've learned from their journey thus far and how it has influenced the way you think about it. We've been in a fantastic fundraising environment over the last couple of years for anything fintech and especially for digital banking. Because of that and because a lot more people seeing the success in other parts of the world and recognizing the opportunity here in Southeast Asia. So there's been a lot of flow to try and play this market here. So we've been benefiting from that and we've been very fortunate to like assemble an amazing group of uh, backers, including of course Insignia, which backed us, you know, from the seed stage and then a couple others just to mention like Square India, Coin72, Igmo, Altera, and in the latest round, we got Mizuho, one of the largest Japanese banks. 
and one of the top 10 banks in Asia to come in and back us as well, as well as Prosos, you know, another very big and international fund, very active in fintech. So the group of investors brings together, like between them, the VCs that are backing us, they probably back 70 plus percent of all the fintech unicorns globally. That gives us amazing access. When I want to find out what New Bank has done, well, guess what? The guy that started New Bank, he actually used to be a Sequoia partner in Latin America, right? We have access to just about any fintech that we want to talk to globally. And that gives us also speed and insight because we can learn from the lessons, figure out how these lessons apply to our market, and then, you know, try to do things differently so that we don't step on the same garden rate. And do things in three months instead of a year. Yeah, exactly. That accelerates us because then we don't make mistakes. We don't burn as much money. We don't have to iterate as much. We can just like absorb that. So for example, you know, initially we're looking at our onboarding conversion ratio. We're getting pretty worried because there was substantial drop off between download and actually completing onboarding. And then we asked our shareholders to give us some comps from some of the other neobanks they invested in. And, you know, we got three of those comps and come down because like apparently we're actually from the outset, they had already like two years of traction. Give you perspective. And we said, okay, so maybe we don't need to spend so much time and effort right now on this issue. So let's focus on some other stuff. And speaking of backers, I want to zoom in on the latest round, the 131 million round, which is a pretty sizable Series B on its own. But really what's interesting is that it's led by one of the top banks in APAC, Mizuho Bank. How does this square with this, you know, bigger picture of a lot more traditional institutions and really like regional banking institutions working with digital first or digital only players like yourself? For a large institution, especially like large banks, it's very difficult for them to innovate just because of the way that a large bank has to be run these days. A lot of risk, compliance, ops risk, AML, KYC, all sorts of considerations that take huge priority. And then banks tend to be run by committees. And in a committee, in a large organization like this, when there's a lot of people whose full-time job it is to keep the food on the break. Then the guys who want to achieve something new and really create change, it's super hard for them. So I think that's really the big part of what makes the opportunity exciting for me, because I don't think that the big banks are capable of innovating nearly as fast as guys like us. And as I mentioned, you know, product and branding, those are two things that we did that takes guts and that takes speed. And you need to keep iterating that because client expectations change and you need to adapt to those. So this is where we're probably seeing that in 20 years, most of the business will be done. Digital. Customer doesn't wake up in the morning and goes, OMG, wouldn't it be great to go to a bank branch today? That's just like not on people's wish list for the day ever, right? <laughs> you know, there's a famous phrase, I think, from Bill Gates, you know, a long time ago. They said, like, everybody needs banking, nobody needs banks. So that's going to change. And so within that transition, who is going to capture that transition and that, like, sea change within that transition? Is it going to be the current institutions or is it going to be any of the new guys like us? And my money is on guys like me, frankly. That's the reason I'm on this side and not on the, you know, not on the side of a large corporate bank. A large corporate bank probably wouldn't hire me. You know, I'm too wild for them. You know, because of that innovation and the speed of innovation, that's going to win the client over. And we'll see that guys like me will be taking very significant market share over time. And the guys that don't adapt fast enough will go the way of the dodo. So I would be shorting the index of incumbent banks right now in any Southeast Asian market.
You've talked about product and promotion as one of the key drivers for growth for Tonic in the past year and a half. And I also want to talk about another P, which is partnerships, for example, with like Google Cloud for APIs and then more recently the, the one with Tinder as well for user acquisition. So what has your been approach to sort of prioritizing and creating win-win partnerships with various brands that are not necessarily financial services? So there's kind of two big groups of these partnerships. There are distribution partnerships and there's technology partnerships. And on the technology side, the approach we've taken from the beginning is we want milk, so we don't necessarily need to buy the cow to have milk. So in our technology stack, the only thing basically that we've developed on our own is the app itself. But all the other elements of it, the core banking, the card processing, the API management. There's about 30, 35 positions, I think, at this point in our tech vendor stack. We've entered in world-class stuff where we ran very open tenders. We evaluated whatever solutions that we could find, and we found the best solution that best fit our needs on quality, on cost efficiency, et cetera. And we took that solution, and we made that part of our tech stack. So that's very different for us compared to some of the other digital banks out there, like they choose to develop everything on their own. We've chosen partnerships because we don't think these days you need to be redeveloping and become an expert in every part of the technology value chain. I find that counterintuitive. I think Google is doing a way better job at API management than I ever could. So why the hell would I want to mess with that? Or like Finastra is doing an amazing job in core banking. And now that they have a cloud solution for the last few years, these guys have been in core banking business for 30, 40 years, since the mainframe days, I think. So like, what value am I going to add to them on core banking? Nada, right? That's the position we've taken on technology. And we're very, very happy that we have some great partners there that continue to support us and we continue to grow with them. On distribution, frankly, we're at the very beginning of the journey. So far, we've taken an organic route to customer acquisition. Most of it has been completely organic. So with very little advertisement so far, mostly like word of mouth or, you know, some Facebook stuff here and there, but we haven't really advertised that much. And you probably have noticed, you know, we got a couple of clips running on YouTube about our deposit products, but that's really the only like brand advertisement we've done. And we're not putting much capital behind that at all right now. Because we already went too fast with the deposits. Now we need to make sure we have the lending that can catch up to that. And only then can we kind of lift both sides of the balance sheet in proportion. But on distribution, one thing that we're really keen to do now that we've got a bit of scale and a bit of muscle around the bone, we're starting to talk to a variety of players in the market about strategic partnerships. As I mentioned to you on the BNPL, for example, we're going into the offline merchant business for consumer electronics, furniture, uh, PCs, laptops, consumer goods, consumer durables. That's going to be the mainstay of our BNPL business. And we have a couple of announcements that will be coming out on that quite soon. We're also talking to a number of players in the F&B space about referral partnerships and just referral programs where they help us originate clients by virtue of all these like client loyalty programs and all these points of sale. It's just like a cross-promotion thing that we're starting to build with them. And so again, the announcements are going to be coming out soon. So that's the type of thing that we'll build a lot because we want to now starting to plug into the mainstream consumer account. And through these partnerships with F&B, FMCG types of companies, we think we can accelerate our penetration of the market. And a year ago for us it was really hard to talk to them because they were kind of all like who the heck are you and what do you got why should i partner with you because i got like 500 stores and what do you got but like at this point i think people have recognized a little more what is tony and they now appreciate the brand fit and the brand synergy that we can create by kind of feeding off of each other Mm -hmm. So I'd like to also touch on Tonic's team as well, since obviously when we, in our last conversation, Tonic was just 
starting out, it just announced its license and has just been building its, its product and its team. But now, obviously, the team has significantly grown and you have a lot more leaders as well in the company. So we'd love to ask you as a CEO, what has been your approach to building out your senior leadership to help you navigate the Philippines as well? Yeah, thanks, Paul. We're at this point where we have over 500 clinicians and that's split about 300 plus in the Philippines and Manila. Then we got about 100 and 60, 170, I think, in India at this point, which is our R&D center. Then there's, I think, around 30 people in Singapore, which is kind of where some of our top management and a lot of our key technologists are actually based out of Singapore because they're the translators between the product and strategy and the R&D. So it's been, you know, very exciting level of growth. And, you know, I think for us, managing that remotely has been really rough because, how do you create a culture? But like now that COVID is actually subsiding and travel is opening up, I was amazing, you know, for me last week to be in Manila for the first time in two years. All the photos. <laughs> You're really enjoying your time there. <laughs> I was having the time of my life because I was like... Right, right. To tears almost to just like see what we've accomplished and what wonderful people we have on the team now and how far we've come without really being able to see each other and you know feel each other at the kind of interpersonal level. As we go forward, we continue to reinforce our values, our culture. I mean, those are the key things that make us Tonizans and make us do our job right. And yeah, looking forward to actually being able to get to India in the next month or two, coming back to Manila and just like continuing to get in front of our team and together with our team and really helping them all to integrate with each other as well better. Even the top management, like we haven't yet had the opportunity because our top management is actually based across five countries right now. It's pretty crazy what we've been able to pull off with this kind of setup. Yeah, I'm sure it must have been energizing as well for the folks in Manila to see their, their cheap bulldozer in person yeah, and, and finally figure out like, who's this guy I'm working for. But it's great. And obviously the, the team can only grow from here. And we'll be leaving a link in the episode description for anyone who wants to become a Tonic and see what, what opportunities there are working with Tonic. So to wrap things up before we head into our next segment, I just want to touch on, obviously, when it comes to consumer finance, would be pretty remiss not to talk about this whole like crypto DeFi that's really emerged, especially in markets like the Philippines, where you have a lot of adoption in terms of like crypto wallets and, and usage and all of that. So we'd love for you to share your thoughts on what are the implications of this for a company like Tonic and how do you see this digital banking movie, as you've called it in our, in our last conversation, playing out in the Philippines in the next five years? Yeah, that's a really good question, Paulo. We're looking at the crypto space. We've analyzed the interests and needs and desires of our customers when it comes to this space. And we're in the process of designing some product that will hopefully address some of these customer needs. As you say, the situation has changed fundamentally in the last couple of years where crypto went from this niche thing that just only like a few like nerdy guys were like super keen on to then mass market kind of realizing the potential of it. And, you know, I think the investment options are not that huge in the traditional world. Like in funds, haven't really been returning that much. Real estate, now people are very worried about real estate, that you know the interest rates are going to be going up. So people are looking for alternative ways of placing some of their savings. As we're a savings player, that is something that we have to think about as well. We are in the process of developing something. We'll be able to announce that something hopefully in the next few months. But I'll just leave you with the fact that we do think that mass market adoption is happening in the Philippines. And if you're one of the early movers in that, it can really give you a bit of a competitive edge over everybody else. And how about the, the whole digital banking story here in the Philippines? We've had a privilege of being in the front row seat with you guys, partnering with you guys and seeing it unfold. But how do you see it 
moving forward in the next five to ten years? Yeah, Central Bank has granted, I think, five or six of these licenses in addition to us. None of the other guys have launched yet, so I know we're in conversations with them. We're actually jointly with them in the process of creating a digital bank association right now, so we're well in touch. They're in the process of coming to the market, and we'll see kind of how that launch goes with what speed it goes. I'm sure it will go great because, you know, what I'm seeing in the market is that the capacity of the market is enormous. And as I was saying, like Philippines, it's a huge banking market on the consumer lending alone that's, you know, going to go to 50 to $100 billion. Definitely going to take a village and the village is not going to consist of like five people. It's going to consist of, you know, a few dozen people that are going to be like eating that elephant. Then on the deposit side, you have $300 billion pre-existing deposit market. And again, a lot of that is going to shift into the digital channel. I see very, very big potential for it. Who will benefit the most from that potential? You know, I think guys that are looking more like Tonic will probably be better positioned to benefit from it than guys that are more a digital channel of a traditional bank. For all of these, you know, 6B reasons that I've been talking about throughout the last hour. That is just like much harder to replicate those six Bs when you come from a traditional bank. So I'm very excited about the potential for digital banking in the Philippines. Yeah, the six Bs. <laughs> I think we'll definitely have to recap that in some kind of article or something. <laughs> but yeah, definitely exciting to see where it goes. And on that note, we'd love to get into our rapid fire round. I think you experienced this the first time we had our conversation, but we have a different set of questions this time around. What are the top three traits that a startup CEO should not have? Trait number one that you shouldn't have as a startup CEO is patience. If you're too patient, then you're not going to be pushing hard enough. Second thing is complacency or get too comfortable because somebody is right behind you that's going to eat your lunch if you don't run fast enough. And the third one is humility because, you know, to lift a startup, you need to get a team together that is better than you. And every single one of them needs to be better than you at what they do and hopefully, you know, smarter than you in general. So the good skill of a leader is not that, you know, you're the smartest guy in the room. The good skill of a leader is that you can get a bunch of smart people together to make sure that they all run towards a common purpose, right? What digital technology or innovation excites you the most today? I'm very excited by AI. At this point, decisions that AI is able to make, it makes already in position to make better decisions than humans. I'm both excited and scared by it because like, of course, like Skynet is coming and like, you know. <laughs> the other one that Elon Musk is, is building, like, I think. Is, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, the Terminator hasn't showed up, the <laughs> right, right. TV, which means I'm probably not going to be the leader of humanity against the evil machine. But it's also very, very exciting because I think that if we manage to harness it, then it will really free up the human mind and the human spirit for what it does best and what the AI by its design so far cannot really do well, which is be creative, ask the right kinds of creative questions, juxtapose and connect the things that are maybe not as obviously connectable, and then from that create something new. I think the human spirit is about creativity, and that's something that AI cannot do. So if we can release more humans to be more creative, then we can really give humanity a huge boost. What's the most memorable class that you've been in? I was very lucky in my 30s to have attended a week-long leadership course at Stanford that was put together. It was a YPO only. You know, I'm a member of something called the Young President's Organization, which is a global network for executives of significant companies. And so it was a YPO only event for a week that brought together some of the best professors in Stanford and all of the audience were CEOs of big companies globally. And I just became a CEO, you know, I was building this bank in Eastern Europe. For me, it was a huge aha moment. You know, when I moved from private equity to being a CEO, what does it mean to be a leader? You know, it's just like was an eye opener and really helped inform my leadership in the last 15 years. 
And on that note, thank you so much again, Greg, for coming back on the show and bringing us up to speed on this tremendous momentum that Tonic has been on and looking forward to all these new milestones and records that you'll be breaking this year with all these new lending propositions and other offerings for users like myself. So super excited on both fronts for what's to come. So thank you once again, Greg, for coming on the show. Thank you, Paula. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Stay on the line with us for more conversations with our founders and investors in the region. Until our next call, I am Paolo Aquino and this has been On Call with Insignia Ventures.